Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Miss Sky Quarto, chronic pain patient, who is here to tell her story. And with that, I'd like to welcome Miss Quarto. Thank you for telling your story and joining us today. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background story and how you came to be a chronic pain patient. Well, um, about 13 years ago, I started having um, joint pain and um, I had been really active. I was teaching snowboarding and um, I was a school teacher and really had a full life and things like that, and I took a lot of a leave and things like that to start with, and um, that helped for a while, and then it didn't help so much. So um, at that time, probably around 2011, um, I was able to get a small script for opiate pain meds and things were fine. I was only taking them, um, oh, like when I was teaching snowboarding or something like that, that was very physical and I really needed it that extra help. Um, then, um, I, um, I, moved to New Mexico uh, partially because um, I thought the weather would be a little better and I was also uh, was it was difficult for me to get really much help at that point I had no insurance either so that wasn't really great <laughs> either so um, I moved to New Mexico and I was uh, substitute teaching and still teaching snowboarding in the winters but um, I that was getting increasingly hard to do and I uh, found a wonderful pain doctor at that point and uh, because of her I was able to really just basically have just a normal life and I really didn't think much about it at all because my life just went on and um, I was getting good meds and was able to exercise. And that was the problem was before I could get medicine and such, I was unable to exercise and it was a bad cycle. I'd really gotten into a really bad cycle. And once I could break that cycle, I was actually able to do much better and need less medicine and do yoga and all kinds of other things, diet and really do a lot of things. And things were just went great. I was, I made money. I was buying a home. Um, I had my little uh, medical alert dog that helped me to be able to travel and we did all kinds of things. We did agility and took long hikes. And I had a boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, just basically, it was, things were good. Mm-hmm. I was making money and it was all right. And then came 2016. And in 2016, um, my doctor was shut down 
by the hospital that oversaw her clinic. And there really wasn't a, a big reason for it. They, they told her that it wasn't making money, but I don't know really if that was it. But at that point, um, I was able to get to see another doctor that just took over those scripts and for about another year, and that was okay. And then um, I went to Ecuador for a couple of years. And thanks for finding Ecuador. I took my records, and the the drugs were different there. They had different names, but they were still, you know, the same kinds of things. Um, I, I should also say that I had tried all kinds of other things um, and had to see a, a psychiatrist, you know, the one time. Okay, so things were great. Ecuador was great. I was fine. Then I came back to Colorado, where I live now, and it was bad, really bad. I could not get anyone to prescribe at all. What year was this? In my small valley, um, our local doctor told me, I'm not going to be your your legal drug dealer, he said to me. Wow. And I was like, wow. So um, I... I started, you know, and, and people were telling me all these things like, you know, you're, you're an addict and it's the, it's these pain meds, these opiate pain meds that are causing you pain. And so at that point I had money and I went to a very an expensive Malibu rehab. And at that rehab, I found out that I was not a drug addict at all. I was so different than the people that were there that were addicts, um, the way that they they used drug they used the drugs they everything was so different. Um, it was like you know if somebody gave them five they would take them all at once or something. Where me I'd be oh got to make sure they all last till you know the script's all d- done and things like that. It just was so different, so different. Why why um, did you go to a rehab facility if you didn't feel like you had a substance dependency. Well, I was, you know, the people were telling me at that point that that seemed to be the what was going on in this valley. People were saying, "Oh, well, if you, you know, if you can't make it without opiate pain meds, um, then that and lots of people have arthritis. Lots of people have inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis and, and managed to make it without without those." And I. I just sort of fell for it. I really did. I just thought, wow, you know, I'm maybe that's true, you know. So I went there because I didn't also I didn't want to go through withdrawals. I'd never gone through withdrawals and I knew that they'd do it with uh, suboxone, which they did and it still was not it wasn't really bad or anything. I kinda of had one day I'd feel real good, but um it was fine and then they just they they take you off the suboxone over a couple weeks after that well um after that i i knew that i wasn't i knew that i wasn't an addict that i was a pain patient but i thought well i'm just going to do everything i can to try to make life work for me and yeah i couldn't get anything anyway so it was just what to do and um i spent the next two and a half years um, losing everything. <laughs> I lost everything. I lost my home. I lost my work. I lost my boyfriend. I lost, I, 
I couldn't do anything. I just couldn't believe it. Um, and I really was, it was hard because I couldn't break that cycle, you know, of, of just that little bit that could help me to do, to be functional enough to do the things that helped me be, get better that weren't necessarily the opiate pain meds, that they were other things. And I was doing all those other things, which helped, but I could no longer do any yoga, even modified. Um, and mostly I just couldn't work. It was, and I just was kind of a crabby person, I, I you know, looking back. So finally, after two and a half years, and I still, I was still in pain. It never changed, ever. And so I just really don't believe that story that they say about that opiate pain meds cause pain because that wasn't that that because you would think if that was true I would I would have it, the pain would have gotten less at least but it never did in fact it got worse over that time wow um, because I wasn't doing as much I was more depressed and things like that so um, I I finally started looking for a doctor. I could not find anyone here whatsoever. And I live on the western slope of Colorado. It's a rather rural area, even though I'm 30 miles from Aspen. It's just there's not really any specialists and that. So I was driving over to Denver, and I was put on Belbuca, which is um, some kind of it's – uh, it's like Suboxone, but it's for pain. And it helped slightly. But it didn't really help a lot. Right. So um, I looked around for another pain doctor, and I had another pain doctor that helped me, that gave me a small script for just regular pain meds, and um, still way under the the uh, ninety mme thing that there they really push and all that. Um, and things got better. They definitely got much better. Um, and at this point, um, uh, what's been good is after, for about a year, I had to go down there. It was really bad because they'd, they'd want a, uh, a pill count or um, a UA or something. And this is, we're talking 200 miles in the winters, and there's storms going over the passes, you know, Vail Pass and Eisenhower and all of this. And they, it's like tough. You got to get here. So anyway, finally, a doctor here took pity on me and just took over the script and that's pretty much where I am now and um, it's less than I used to have but I'm grateful um, because I am functional I can work part-time I'm 68 and um, <laughs> unfortunately I just I had a bad accident broke my wrist and arm and stuff like that so that that I saw <laughs> I go to the hospital and I was in horrible pain. It was because I shattered it bad. And I'm crying. And, and they told me they wouldn't give me any pain meds because my regular pain meds should cover it. I was like, you've got to be kidding, you guys. So, um, you know, for, I just went home, took extra. I did. I just, it was probably the first time I'd ever really not, you know, worried, had to worry about maybe running short or something. But I ended up having to have surgeries and things. And I, at first, they wanted to push me into surgery right away, but I could not get them to agree uh, to give me pain meds. And um, 
that were on top of my regular my regular script because I knew that that was not going to cover it. And um, it, I had to wait two weeks for the the surgeon to speak with my primary care. And finally, they worked it out. But um, I ended up having a couple surgeries. And, you know, I just got a short short acting script and such. But it was, it was helpful. And um, now... I I just mostly that my primary is like he will not go over that 90 mme you know that's his thing you know um, and it worries me because I'm not really getting better from this uh, and I know that if I had even what I had before that I could work more and things like that so it's really hurt my life a lot. Um, I'm not, I mean, this area is really hard to find housing. It's very expensive. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I think it's important to tie those two together. You talk about your journey as a chronic pain patient, navigating surgeries, going through the ups and downs of communicating with your physicians, primary care specialists, but also you're experiencing economic hardship. You're traveling in and out of the country Talk to us about how your life affects your journey as a chronic pain patient and how you navigate the two at the same time. How I navigate um, being a chronic pain patient and life? Yeah. Oh, whoa. Um, whoa. Oh. Well, um, I have to do more. I it, it, I have to spend more time thinking about my about pain and things like that. Like, um, like for one one thing is that you know doc, this doctor requires that I see a counselor. Unfortunately, he's a really great guy. Uh, it, that's it's okay, but um, I have to plan things. Um, so that you know, I know I can, I can be okay. Because I'll know the times that I'll be all right, and times that I won't. And it's also rough as far as work because, um, well, I was a, a teacher, but I also went back to school to become a vet tech, and I really loved it. Really loved it, but I can't do it physically. I could if I could get. A more, uh, I feel a more adequate pain management program, um, but you know they just they just send me to PT and things like that, and it's it's so it's the thing about PT. It's like just getting there and doing that is takes takes thought and planning and these kinds of things, and I just don't like to have to spend my life being a chronic pain patient. That's not who I am. But yet I found myself um, having to be that. And it's hard on my self-esteem and a lot of other things. But then on the other hand, I am the type of person that finds out everything I can and researches things. And it's also made me an activist um, for chronic pain patients in that 
go having a rally. And even if it was just me and another guy, we passed out uh, pamphlets and talked with people down at the park um, and things like that. Uh, mostly it's just it's dealing with doctors because you – you you can't you, you don't you can't make them angry. You can't do that. It's just if I lost my doctor, I don't know what I'd do. Um, it would my life would be done. It really would. I I don't know what I would do. Um, it's just yeah. So I can't always say I can't tell them the truth, and that's horrible because you should be able to be honest, totally honest with your doctor. Um, I want to give him all information and things like that, but I just find that even telling him, oh, did you see the new guidelines or something like that? Well, uh, yeah, he, he goes, they're, they're a little bit more liberal, but I'm already really liberal. And I mean, I didn't want to say, well, <laughs> really? And because I can't, I can't talk to him and say, well, just like six years ago, I had, you know, I was getting almost twice what I do now, and I obviously am not getting better. The x-rays and tests and things don't show that, or they show that. Um, one thing that is hard is uh, you, should, you need to have your records. Yeah. And uh, if you have something that is not mm, – really easily diagnosable, like I'm a seronegative uh, rheumatoid arthritis patient. Now, in New Mexico, that wasn't a problem. They, they accept it there. They say any kind of, um, of, like I only had like 18 on the rheumatoid factor. Uh, well, here they say you have to have a 27 to have rheumatoid arthritis. Whereas my, the doctor there said anybody that has the factor has it. And also the other things. But here I am not able to see a rheumatologist and do other things for myself that might be helpful. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, you might be able to hear it in my voice. It's, it's just an anxiety because I can't control my life as much as I would like to. And... It's also made me poor. Not being able to work really yeah. is hard. It's so hard because I like to work. Yeah. And I'm fortunate that I have a little part-time job. It's just driving. But, I, I mean, I, I could use my education if I had a little more help. I do a lot of other things besides pain medicine. I don't want to seem like... That's what I'm totally dependent on. But yet I found during that time when I wasn't getting any that it was definitely necessary. Yeah. It was a real cornerstone. I mean, without it, the rest of things didn't really matter. Talk a little bit about your experiences with your physicians. What are some things you did to build credibility? And what are some things you did that in your mind had your physicians looking at you a little bit sideways? Well, if you ask for more, that gets them to definitely look at you sideways. Um, I'd say 
what gives me some credibility is doing the things that he suggests, like doing PT um, and things like that, even though sometimes I feel um, uh, that's, that the PT, it's uh, the pain doctor I had before was uh, by a physiatrist, and she really knew the right kind of PT, whereas I I'm not so sure about that now, but that's pretty much it. But also, and, and just being really compliant with everything, you know, just never, I've, I've never had any issues with pill counts or things like that. Um, it, I can't, I, I tell you, though, I can't be honest. I don't feel safe saying to him, you know, I have times where I need more and then, Times and then I'll just make up for it at other times, and then I'm not functional. But uh, when I complained about things, he would turn it into something psychological, as if, well, he'd say, You need to get out more, you need to be more social, and things like that. And I'm, it's like, What a catch 22 that is, yeah. because, yeah. That's interesting. And in your advocacy, talking to other patients, trying to talk to physicians, what are some things you've learned along the way? What are some tips you can provide others who want to follow in your steps and advocate for chronic pain patients? Oh, that is a big question, and it's something that's really important, really important because there's so many people suffering, really suffering, really badly right now. Um. I, the one thing I would say is keep trying. I saw nine different doctors, nine doctors before I found someone that would prescribe correctly for me, or at least the right drug. I wouldn't say amount, but at least an opiate drug, you know, that didn't want to put me on, on mat or um, things like that. Um, and just that you have to keep trying. Like, don't just listen. If you've got a doctor that's being abusive and you're losing your life, you've got to fight for your life. Um, you really do. Um, just keep going to different doctors. And then when you talk to them, you've got to say, the other thing, too, is, is the whole thing about being functional is, is, the, is it. And one thing I do try to do is I try to say, wow, I've, I've got a part-time job now. You know, I wasn't able to have that before. And, you know, things that are going well because I have a little bit of help. Uh, things like that, I think it's important for, for doctors to know that what they're doing for you is helpful if, you, if they are helping you. Um, um, I haven't had a lot of luck giving them research. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, my ex was a doctor and such, but there's some a little bit of ego yeah. going on. So. I can see that for sure. Definitely from a physician standpoint, having your patient give you a clinical study uh, definitely triggers a sense of questioning as to why are you giving me this clinical study? Are you trying to lead me to think a certain way? But it's important that patients participate in the clinical decision making, particularly when you're dealing with something as subjective as pain. Uh, before we conclude, I want to ask 
you know, a slightly uncomfortable question, but I think it's one that's important. Can you give an example of when you felt like your physician didn't believe you or that your physician was doubting what you were saying and what triggers you picked up on to lead you to feel that way? Oh, definitely. Um, I unfortunately, um, the home that I lived in burnt down a year and a half ago, and that was a Friday. And I, of course, lost my medicine, and I called my doctor, and he happened to be in California at the time. And I told him what happened, and he didn't, I mean, he didn't say he didn't believe me, but he was just like, oh, well, uh, until, you know, they, they put the fire in the paper. And so, there, you know, this is a fairly small area. And so, you know, some of the staff saw what was going on and it was real. And then it was okay. But for a couple of days, I had to go to emergency. Um, and they were really, it was really, really hard. I, I barely, they did, hardly gave me anything at all. But I managed to, but I kept on it. And showed him proof but that was really i mean and, and i i just felt like you know he probably has had people call to tell him all kinds of stories you know about how they lost their medicine <laughs> and you know well my house burnt down was probably a new one on him but at first he didn't believe it i definitely had to give him the proof and then it was all right but yeah that was kind of rough yeah he also has students in a lot that come in and talk to you. And I try to always tell them about the plight of chronic pain patients and really try to go against the narrative that they're getting in medical school because the young doctors are really getting, they believe hyperalgesia and all that. So even though there's no studies for it. Yeah, it's. Uh... I said that to the doctor. Uh, when in the emergency room and he walked out on <laughs> it's a uh, so that was another one too uh, it, he was just like well i can't talk to you he said <laughs> and it, but it was only because i was saying that studies show that hyperalgesia is very rare yeah and yeah so, it, anyway. it, it's amazing the uh cognitive biases that take place in a patient <laughs> encounter and often um the perceived subject matter expert, the physician, is often leery of taking in new information that may contradict their preconceived notions. And as chronic pain patients, we're always trying to balance that difficult role of conveying information without trying to one-up the physician. And and it's tough. Uh, it's tough. Uh, can you give some examples of times where you were successful in communicating with your physician, explaining something without garnering a negative response? Well, um, I, uh, I got a job that was physically demanding and I said, I really, really need to do this. Could you please help me just a little bit with this? And, um, and if you, and just really made it I really showed him what was going on in my life and such, and he went along with it. And 
And then I was able to show him that, you know, kept that job through the whole season and it kind of saved me until this more recent thing that happened. Um, my ex-husband is in prison right now. He is a pain physician. Um, he's in prison for, and I know he's a conservative. I know it. I know he's no pill mill or anything like that. So I, I, he had a lot of Medicare patients and Medicaid patients, and I believe that he was probably close, you know, possibly at the top of the list with um, prescribing to uh, people with Medicaid and Medicare, and I believe that he was targeted. He's 76 years old with heart problems, but they don't care. Yeah. And I just, I, I'm just unbelievable that, that that can happen. You know, to someone who's helping people that have cancer and horrible, awful things. You know, and then those people are just abandoned. And unfortunately, it's a lot more common than the media would like to have you here. And I think us telling... Yeah, I get really angry. Yeah. And I, I also talk to all my friends and everything about yeah. about the propaganda yeah. and and my life and things like that. But, you know, as far as advice for other pain patients, keeping a low profile and doing what the doctor says and not making yourself a liability to the doctor is probably really important because perhaps you know they don't want it's already usually hard we tend to be more complex than somebody who comes in with oh a sim more simple diagnosis and i i would just say you know of course you have to be, say if there's something going on things like that but you know, really do your best to make it so that you're not a difficult patient. <laughs> um, and because we, we already are the difficult patients. So try to make it as less difficult for them as possible. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Working with your physician to build the credibility is a, a key key driver in having a successful relationship. Um, and with that, Ms. Cuarto, thank you so much for sharing your story, providing advice for chronic pain patients listening, and just providing another data point for us to understand that we're not alone in this and that by sharing our stories, we're working together to counter the narrative that's hurt so many chronic pain patients in this opioid crisis. Yes, I could talk with you about about so many aspects of this not just the personal but the political um you know with with um the other side of the coin the addiction coin and things like that things i've studied and wrote articles on um and i'm so glad that you're you know, bringing a light on this because it's really the the, the government control of doctors and healthcare is just hurting us people yeah it is just hurting us and not helping anyone so it, it really is and i think the most vulnerable patients are the ones who are suffering for sure yes and also i find that you know the, the chronic pain patients there's people that are way way worse off than me and they can't fight back at all yeah. and that's the sad thing it's not like we can be 
out there, you know, protesting and stuff because some of these people find it hard to get out of bed and them getting pain medicine is the difference between them being able to play with their grandkids and having no quality of life whatsoever, the suicides and all of these things. It's just, I really, really appreciate what you're doing and I hope that we can continue to get the message across. No, definitely. This is just the beginning. And uh, with that, Ms. Quartzo, thank you so much for your time and have a good night.